we begin the message time today, jumping back into our Asking for a Friend series, I just want to remind you that last week and this week, we're dealing with uh, the realities of physical intimacy outside of last week and more inside of this week in the context of marriage relationship. So if you're watching this morning and you have, um, you have little ones uh, with you, you may want to choose to engage them maybe at another time in the, uh, in the LifePoint Kids uh, material that's provided um, from the Gospel Project, from what we do here in, uh, in LPK. I'm not saying that you should do that. We're going to align ourselves um, fully with the classical view from the church throughout a couple of thousand years of church history and the global church's uh, view when it comes to these realities. But I did want to make you aware of that. I'm going to uh, pray here in just a minute, and hopefully that'll give you a little bit of time. I know you can push pause um, on the uh, on the service this morning at any point uh, to make uh, to make those decisions as well. I want to say that we want to be prayerful with you. Sometimes, whenever we discuss uh, these realities, I know that it surfaces things that we just need the body to come around us and to pray uh, with us. So you can always share those prayer requests with us, uh, info at lifepointohio.com if you'd like to um, send it that way, or you can go to the Next Steps button uh, there on the LifePoint app if that's helpful to you to share a prayer request with us that way. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started this morning. Um, God, we um, come to you this morning, and we um, we confess, uh, we throw ourselves towards your uh, your heart, your power, your presence. God, we humble ourselves in front of you and know that, God, when it comes to these topics of, of relationships and love and all those kinds of things, that, God, we need you. We need your help. We're not smart enough, strong enough, capable enough to handle these things, these realities um, on our own. So we're grateful, God, for the way that you have displayed love, shown us love, the way that we know love, the reality um, of what that is. And so, God, we pray and ask for your help your guidance today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the reason this series is called Asking uh, for a Friend is that we've all got questions. Some that we ask, some that we wish somebody else maybe would voice for us. Most of our questions surround the idea, the topic of relationships. And so I think that's why the scriptures give us 59 one another um, one another verses where it says, hey, love one another, forgive one another, and how, we, how we're supposed to walk together and walk faith out. And so in this series, we are seeking answers to our questions, and we're doing that in the context, really, of, of wanting to do it two things. Number one, believe the truth correctly, and then number two, treat one another carefully. I'll say that to you again, believe the truth correctly and treat one another carefully. And so the big idea for this series is that God has the answers to life's toughest questions. We believe that. We believe that comes right out uh, of the Scripture's in some of these more difficult realities. Today's question that we're going to kind of address is, why does it feel like marriage uh, is so difficult? Paul's going to address this in the context of 1 Corinthians 7 for us. And I just thought, as we started today, I would, I would ask you this question. When I say marriage to you, who in the Bible do you think of that has a fantastic marriage? Where uh, do you go to, at least in your mind, and your heart, in the scriptures, whenever you think of two people laying their lives down for each other, loving one another in the context of God's love and the way that he's given that for us and to us, who, who are the people that come to mind? Um, I don't know, maybe Abraham and Sarah, but the reality is uh, that Abraham twice tries to give Sarah away to another man to save uh, his own skin, in his mind at least, save, save his own life. So that's probably not good. You think about 
you know, maybe the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. I mean, maybe he should have at least one, right? <laughs> at least one healthy marriage. I mean, he had hundreds of them. So maybe, maybe just one really, maybe you're thinking Ruth and Boaz uh, in the Old Testament, which is a wonderful picture of a relationship, but it's really a dating relationship. We don't really know a lot about Ruth and Boaz's marriage. To be quite honest, when, if I, in asking that question of myself, I was, it's really hard to think of somebody. It's hard to think of a marriage in the scriptures even that you would say, oh yeah, they had an ideal, an ideal relationship, an ideal kind of, of marriage that I would want to miss. So whenever we talk about marriage, what tends to happen is that we tend to go to a passage, a New Testament passage like Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about the realities of husband-wife relationships. So we go over to 1 Peter. or, But I would suggest that Paul says more about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says more about marriage in this text, in this passage, than almost anywhere else, at least, um, in the New Testament. And we learn more about it here. We just don't talk about it. Um, we just don't talk about it a lot in church because it's not an easy passage uh, with which uh, to deal and to draw conclusions. But we're looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 in this series because there's just so much relational insight and wisdom uh, and, and, and help. So just remember, Paul, Corinthian church, right? He planted a church there in Corinth, stayed there for about a year and a half. Acts chapter 18 moves on to plant other churches. And when he does, things kind of go sideways in the, in the church at Corinth. Like leaders arise, they, they see things differently. They think they're even wiser than Paul is. And so what happens in that reality, I mean, you get Corinth, Las Vegas of the ancient world, uh, the Bourbon Street of the ancient world, if you will. Temple of Aphrodite is there. So there's a thousand temple prostitutes that serve there. Uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility, served there during the day. And then at night, they would flood the streets uh, of the city. And so they've got all these realities regarding sexuality, and they, they really come to Paul. They write him a letter, and they're like, we got all these questions. <laughs> we, need, we need help. So this, is, this asking for a friend reality, um, you really feel it when you get to the beginning of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Before we do that, though, I just want to zoom out a little bit on the broader context of 1 and 2 Corinthians of these two letters. I think there's a unique metaphor here that makes a difference for us as we think about the context of, of uh, the marriage kind of relationship um, all together. In chapter 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians, in verse 27, Paul introduces us to this metaphor. At the end of verse 27, he says, God chose what is weak. That's really the, the metaphor word. In the world to shame the strong. Very general said God uses the weak to shame the strong. But you get over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the next chapter, and it gets a little more specific where Paul applies this to himself. In verse, uh, verse 3, in the beginning, he says, I was with you in weakness. There's that, there's that word again. You go two chapters forward, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and really Paul then says, um, he's, he applies the, the metaphor to his leadership versus the current leadership. Um, in his absence, as he's left uh, there in the church at Corinth. And he says, we are weak, uh, but you are strong. So I would suggest to you that Paul begins the letter to the first Corinthian, or the letter to the Corinthians in first Corinthians with this metaphor of weakness. And not only that, 
But when you read on through from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians and you get to the end, in the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, nine times Paul uses the same metaphor of weakness. He uses the word weak or weakness four different times. I'll just give you one in kind of the famous uh, thorn in the flesh uh, passage there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5. So this is the end of 2 Corinthians. He says this, I will only boast about, uh, I will only boast about my weakness. And so I think what Paul is presenting to the Corinthians and therefore um, presenting to us is this reality of active weakness versus passive pseudo strength. So active weakness is you and I understanding that because we're flawed, because we're broken by sin, we actively approach God in the context of weakness, uh, asking him to do what we cannot do in ourselves, right? It's, it's God, um, I can't, you can't, I can't change myself. You can change me. I can't transform myself. You can, you can transform me. So we approach God in the context of active weakness, admitting our weakness, which is therefore then becomes strength versus approaching God from the perspective of pseudo-strength where we've got the answers and the agendas and we're asking God to join us in our plans instead of us joining him in his plans. So I think what Paul would say is there's this kind of wonderful, beautiful, active weakness, which is not a word that we love in our culture. I was thinking about saying today, it's not a word we love in the West. It's actually not a word we love in the, in the world. We love strength. We love strong people, right? We love people who get things done. But what Paul suggests is that you and I approach God in the context of active, active weakness in humility. That becomes strength versus, versus the idea of living out some sort of pseudo strength, which actually becomes weakness, which is really foolish stupidity. So what I would suggest to you throughout the broad context of 1st and 2nd Corinthians is that Paul begins the letter to the Corinthians with this metaphor of weakness. He ends the letter with the metaphor of weakness. And therefore, everything in the middle is all about how to live out active weakness. I could say it to you this way, the way that my New Testament professor said it to me in seminary, in my humble but accurate opinion, this whole letter is about living out active, active weaknesses. We deal with conflict when we talked about uh, week one. Active weakness when we talked about sexual morality as we did um, last week. Active weaknesses we talk about singleness and divorce in upcoming weeks. And today, active weakness in the context of the marriage relationship. So they've asked Paul all these questions. And when we transition from 1 Corinthians 6 to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, okay, You've asked me some questions. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you some answers. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, that's asking for a friend, right? Here's Paul's quote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now that's what they said to him. They said, hey, are we right on this or are we not right um, about this? And he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Um, we, <laughs> we tend to romanticize sexuality to uh, an incredible degree here uh, in our country, in our culture. And I think maybe Paul here uses a, the word, I mean, con, the conjugal right. I mean, that doesn't sound romantic, right, at all. Um, the the NIV doesn't do any better if you go read a different translation. The, the NIV, I think, uses the word duty, right? And so you're, you know, 
watching Hallmark Christmas movies. I mean, you're not going to see one entitled Your Yuletide Duty, right? That doesn't sound romantic uh, at all. It's outside the sphere. The King James translators didn't do much better. Um, the word they put here is the only time they were, used the word in the whole Bible. They used the word benevolence. Like that's the word uh, that they tucked in here. So Paul's trying to present a reality that I'm sure seems countercultural to the Corinthians. And in doing so, I feel like he's looking for, uh, he's looking for accurate, uh, accurate words. Um, so picking back up there, her conjugal uh, rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over, authority over his own body, um, but, the wife, uh, but the wife does. So what Paul is arguing for here is covenant oneness in the context of marriage. He's arguing here for the reality that one man, one woman come together in the strong bond of marriage and covenant oneness, yielding themselves, yielding their bodies to one another um, in such a way that it looks like servanthood, active weakness, approaching God in the, in the concept, in the space of humility, asking God to fill them, to do in them what they can't do, which is to allow themselves to bend themselves towards each other, to come together because two people in marriage become one. So what does that mean for you and me? I think first, it means that we should not either idolize nor demonize marriage. Don't idolize or demonize marriage. You know, the, the, the church throughout history has not always done a great job of talking about uh, marital intimacy um, in, in the context of this covenant oneness relationship. A lot of times, uh, the church has been suspicious. Um, between the third and 10th, uh, centuries, the church would issue edicts. Um, again, very suspicious. Um, the edict, you know, would come out and it would say, okay, um, married couples cannot sleep together on Thursdays because Thursday was the day that Jesus was arrested. <clears throat> that was one of the edicts. And they then issued another one that said, well, couples can't, they can't sleep together on Fridays because that was the day of Jesus's death. And then they issued another one that said, or Sundays out of remembrance for the saints. And then they came along and they issued more edicts. And they said, well, the married couple shouldn't sleep together during Lent or during Advent. I mean, 40 days, 40 days, right, of Advent or during Pentecost, during that celebration. And it was so much so that Yancey, right, the, the, uh, the theologian, the writer, um, he added all these days up on a calendar. And he said, you know, when you add all those, all those edicts up, there were really only 44 days left out of 365 where married couples could come together in one. And so sometimes we as a church, we have the tendency to um, kind of um, stick our head in the sand and pretend like this issue uh, maybe doesn't, doesn't exist. And the reality is that God created sex for our benefit and blessing. That it's a wonderful gift that God gave us. We saw it in the garden, the context of Adam and Eve, and it was given for mutual joy and delight in addition to procreation. It's a gift from God. So, so we shouldn't demonize it. And at the same time, we shouldn't idolize it. We don't, make, um, we don't make marriage and sexuality the be-all, end-all of existence. Sex is not the pinnacle of creation. God is the pinnacle of creation. And sex is a gift that God has given to a man and a woman when they get, when they get married that in a way is an echo of eternal, of eternal realities, but we cannot idolize marriage 
nor should we demonize marriage. So what should we do? I think the reality of what Paul is calling us to is to have a weak marriage. A weak marriage. Two people in humility approaching the throne of God on a regular, daily, consistent basis, asking God to do in them what they cannot do in themselves. And in the process of doing so, those two people bending themselves towards one another in covenant oneness. Let me read, I want to read verse 4 to us again. I want you to hear the sobriety of what Paul is calling us to in the context uh, of marriage. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What you hear in these verses is um, marriage is not a means for uh, uh, self-gratification. Sex inside of marriage is not a means for self-gratification or for manipulation. It's more about sanctification than it is about gratification. It's more about, listen, your body does not belong to you in the context of marriage. In oneness, two people come together, they become one. My body is not my body. I put my body in my spouse's hands and my spouse puts their body into my hands. Now, the way that we've typically taught this um, in the history, in the context of some churches, spaces, places at times um, is that these verses have been weaponized. What we have said is men have these crazy out of control sexual desires. Women really don't have sexual desires. So um, women have to make sure that they're willing to quote unquote keep their husband satisfied um, because if not, that's going to cause all these other problems. And that is not what's presented in this text at all. It's not one person yielding control or authority of their desires and of their, of their bodies. It's two people yielding control and the authority of their bodies and yielding that into their spouse's hands. But the only way that you can do that is in the context of a oneness relationship with your heavenly father, right? So it's not about you getting what you want as Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. It's about giving to your spouse what you want because you have been given everything that you need from God. If we think that we come to marriage and marriage is the be all end all pinnacle of existence where you are completely filled up with love by another human being, we are ultimately going to be disappointed. The sobriety of this text is that we don't come to marriage to get. We come to marriage to to give. It's completely backwards of the way that we have the tendency to look at it. Two people come together in mutual joy, mutual delight, mutual satisfaction as they live in not just physical, but emotional, in communicative, in um, financial, in all those ways we are intimate together as two, as two people. So, that leads us then to consider what makes it difficult? Why, why don't we find ourselves living in that place, um, that space consistently? Um, whenever I do pre-marriage counseling with, uh, with couples who are about to be married, um, I will, uh, typically I will draw out for them the marriage 
triangle. You may have seen it. You may not have seen it. But you think about a triangle, right? It's got a base that goes along the bottom. You got the two arms that come to the top. And the idea of the marriage triangle is that God's up here at the top of the triangle, right? And you're down here and your spouse is down here at the bottom corners of the triangle. And so what happens in marriage, uh, prayerfully, right, in Christian marriage in the context of covenant oneness is that two people get closer to God who's up here at the top. And as two people get closer to God, what naturally happens in a triangle. Those two people get closer to one another, right? So you two people get closer to God this way, and that's what draws two people together. And that works, except for the reality that I think you and I, if you've been a Christian very long, you understand that sanctification, getting closer to God, is not, um, is not always a consistent arc up and to the right in our lives. There are seasons where we grow faster. There are seasons when we grow more. So there are going to be times and moments along the way where maybe a husband is growing more spiritually or a wife is growing more uh, spiritually. And so there'll be seasons and times where those things tend to change and ebb and flow. So the test of marriage in my mind is um, is not how you respond whenever you're getting everything you need or you're getting what you want from your spouse. Really, the test of marriage is how you act and respond when you're not. How do I react when I'm not getting the things that I think I deserve or the things, the things that I want? And so Paul writes to us in this text um, about how we come together in this whole idea of covenant uh, of covenant oneness in the weakness of our approach to Christ as we approach, uh, as we approach our spouse. Now, what tends then, uh, then to happen is because of that, because we're not always on the same page as husbands and as wives, what tends to happen is we try to find ways to leverage, to manipulate, to work our spouse. And we even do that in the context um, of Scripture. So one of the reasons that I think we default to Ephesians 5 um, a lot of times is because seemingly it feels like Ephesians 5 provides order. And in marriage relationship where you've got two people who are relating to God and consequently relating to each other, what we are a lot, we're fishing for order a lot of times. And so, again, historically, what we have defaulted to is Ephesians 5.22. Wives, Submit yourselves, therefore, to your husbands. That's been the default. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear me say, I have no argument with Ephesians 5.22. As long as you talk about the therefore, right? What, what does that mean? So the therefore means that it's based on something that was just said before it. And what was just said before it is Ephesians 5.21, right? Which we don't typically always talk about. I'll read Ephesians 5. Uh, verse 21 uh, says this, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. So in the context of two people approaching God, active weakness, then bending themselves towards each other, all of a sudden what you see is a different looking uh, relationship, a different feel for how we think about how people approach one another. And I think in my experience in ministry, there's no problem with verse 22 as long as verse 21 is in its right place. As long as that's the context for how husbands and wives relate to each other, as long as they're actively laying down their lives for each other, as long as they're actively approaching Christ in the context of one another relationships, 
man, things do seem to gel. So Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, he gives us this picture in verses 33 and 34. He says this, uh, it's part of the beauty of marriage, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. So what Paul does there is he contrasts married, uh, married people, married realities with single people and single realities, which we're going to talk about next week um, as we think about singleness all the way starting back in middle school, high school, all the way into, into adulthood. But it's kind of a sandwich in these verses because then he comes back and he says, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, um, how to please um, how to please her husband. So what Paul gives us is this, um, this incredible picture of what it means um, for husbands and wives to live together in unity. In other words, he says, what is it like for a husband to wake up in the morning approaching God in active weakness and say, God, ultimately, I want to please you today. That's right out of 1 Corinthians. Our goal, our aim, Paul says, is to please him, right? That we are pleasing God in everything. we. So a husband wakes up in the morning. He says, okay, God, my goal today is to please you. Whatever I have to do, I want to please you. But in the context of pleasing you, how can I please my spouse today? And a wife wakes up in the morning and she says, God, my goal, my aim, my ultimate purpose in this world is to please you. And in the context of pleasing you today, you have given this, this husband to me. So how can I please you today? And in the context of pleasing you, how can I please, how can I please my spouse? And when two people live together in the context of what we call holy matrimony. That is two people waking up each day seeing that they are weak, fallen, and broken, and that their only chance for having healthy relationship is going to God and saying, God, my ultimate aim is to please you because when I please you, that's what ends up. The byproduct of that is what gives me joy. And so out of that joy, I don't just want to please you, but I want to please you in the context of pleasing my spouse. And when two people do that, submit to one another out of reverence for one another, it creates, it creates this sense of beauty. And there's this attraction that's created. Whenever, uh, whenever I was in college at Ohio State, I was part of a campus ministry, and one of the folks who would come and speak at our campus ministry, a local pastor from here in Columbus, um, his name was Pastor Bob Duckins, and his wife was Joanne. And I'll show you a picture. It's an old, old picture that I have of him. He pastored Rock of Faith Baptist Church uh, down on Livingston Avenue in town. And when he would come and talk to um, our campus ministry uh, man, the things that he said make sense. And because of that, we had some students who started attending there. And so whenever I had the opportunity, I would try to slip in here and there whenever I could to go to a service at Rock of Faith, predominantly African-American uh, congregation uh, down in, uh, down in uh, off of Livingston Avenue in Columbus. And so in attending there, it was just different. Like when, you would when I would attend sometimes on Sunday night, I was amazed uh, Brother Bob was an incredible teacher, preacher, and he would finish the sermon at times and he would get to the end and he would offer a benediction. And he would pray and he would get to the end and he would say something along the lines of, Father, we are so grateful for you. Thank you for your word. Amen. And right after he would say amen at times, he would look, at, uh, look over to Miss Joanne, who's always sitting, I think she sat front, uh, would be my left or right as you're looking at the screen. He would look over and he would say, Miss Joanne, 
Now let's go home and worship. And I remember being so struck by that. I'm like, is, is he talking about what I think he's talking about? Because <laughs> like, that's, we never, I never, I've never, never been to a church like this, but okay, right? And interestingly enough, he would say, let's go home and worship. And Miss Joanne would always respond and say, amen, like, <laughs> like in, a, in agreement. And obviously the reference there that he's making in the context of covenant, oneness is marital intimacy. And you know what happened in this reality? College students flocked to this church. And to Brother Bob and Miss Joanne's marriage, because it seemed unusual, it seemed uncanny that here were two people who had been married for a long time and who were seemingly loving and enjoying and had this mutual delight in one another and in the relationship that they had with each other. So here's what happened. Their marriage became part of the mission. So we've been given that, right? This great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The great commandment and the great commission, the way that we say that here at LifePoint is that we do two things, draw life from God, that's great commandment, and point others to Him, that's great commission. So think about the amazing reality that God has given you potentially right now. He has given you the marriage that you have for the purpose of the mission. And the mission then is what makes your marriage make sense, that you can live out, in the, the, live out the great commandment, live out the great commission in the context of your marriage relationship, that as you are sanctified, as God uses your marriage relationship to sanctify you, um, to wring out, if you will, think about a washcloth, he's wringing everything out of you that doesn't look like Christ. And a lot of times he uses our marriage relationships to do that in our lives. And as he's doing that, what he is doing is he's using your marriage to make a difference in the world. So I'm going to give you this statement. And for some of us, <clears throat> a lot of us, um, this statement may sting a little bit, but I think it's true. God deserves your joyful marriage. And some of you, I can feel the flags, right? I can feel the flags going up right now. So as we start to round the message out, um, let me give you three, three thoughts, three conclusions for today, in the, in the context of this idea that God deserves our joyful marriage, our joyful, our joyful relationship. Um, number one, um, you and I have got to learn to understand the moments. And what I mean by understand uh, the moments is that there are, there are going to be um, the feels, right, that come out of being a married person. As a matter of fact, somebody told me whenever I got married, um, they said to me, Dean, you're going to wake up some days and you're not going to feel married. You're not going to feel like yielding yourself, serving your spouse. You're not, you're not going to feel like it. You have to do that out of a sense of, of, of covenant oneness. So um, for those of us who are and those of us who are not married people, just remember that you are marrying a broken, flawed person. And every broken, flawed person has moments. And you got to understand the moments. Shelve the moments. <laughs> Ignore the moments, Right? You're, you're going to have um, you're going to have a moment. Maybe you're going to have a season where you're going to say, I, "I think I married the wrong person." It's very popular in our culture today. Yeah, I took a swing at it. I married the wrong person. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller say in their book, "The Meaning of Marriage," um, we all married the wrong person. 
we all marry someone who is broken and flawed. And so you just have to understand that there are going to be moments. So what do you do? That's the second reality. Understand the moments, but find the meaning. Understand the moments, find the meaning. Seek to find out what is God doing in and around you in the context of your marriage. And the reason that I say that is because God will use your marriage like he uses other relationships in your life. He will use your marriage to sanctify, to set you apart, to make you more like Christ, more like Jesus. So what is God doing in you? And I said that's so critical because you cannot change your spouse. As hard as you may try, as much as you may work realities, try to control things, set up situations, you cannot control your spouse. But what you can do is you can allow God to change you in the midst of what he is doing in and around your spouse. And your spouse, your spouse may change quickly overnight at some point. They may change slowly. They may never change. You cannot control their approach in their relationship with Christ. If one, if one even exists at all, you can't change them but you can change you. The test, I'll say this to you again, I said it earlier in the message, the test is, of marriage is not how we react and respond when we get what we want, but how we react and respond when we get what we don't choose or that we don't necessarily want. So practically speaking, what does that mean? If you're listening today and you're a husband, don't get together with your buddies and slam your wives. Just don't, in, don't join, don't engage that conversation. You chose that, or you stepped into this marriage voluntarily. And so the reality of that is that your wife is someone to be loved and someone to be served. And you stepped into this relationship in the context of that biblical reality. So there's no, and wives, same to you. Don't get together with your besties, right? And take swings at your husband turns and you have the real housewives of Delaware County. Like we don't need more of that. What we need more of is people who are under the control and the authority of the Holy Spirit. This is why life groups are so incredibly important. We're starting a brand new term of life groups uh, today. If you are not currently connected to a group, please, 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 please go to lifepointohio.com, go under the life groups tab, view the catalog, find a group, get connected. Even if you need an online option, we will do our best to help you. Uh, we have um, a few groups who can or who are choosing uh, to meet online. Some of our groups will, um, even though they're meeting in person, um, would invite you uh, to come and be part of the group um, online. And we need healthy, healthy biblical community. So understand the moments, right? That's, that's primary. And then um, the second reality, not just, not just that understanding um, of the moments, but you gotta find, you just gotta, you gotta find the meaning. And then third is you've gotta create the margin. God has given us clear priorities, I believe, from scripture when it comes to our human relationships. Well, human spiritual relationship. And I've said it to you before, I'll say it to you again. I think about it like this. Our primary relationship is our relationship with God. Our second relationship, if you are married, is a relationship with your spouse. 
Our third relationship is your relationship with your children. And then everything comes after that. Your tendency and my tendency is always going to be to flip those things and to put our children, family first, whatever time we can squeeze out that we have left is going to be time with our spouse, whatever we can find. And then lastly, God seems to fall back here into third. You have to create, you have to have margin in your life somehow, some way, small as it may be, but you have to have God as priority that time, somehow, some way in your day, however you can fit it. And I know some of you have really small children and they're always with you and they always have questions. And however you can fit some priority of time to be together with God, not only in a space, but throughout the day, time with your spouse, create margin for that reality, and then time with your family. And I believe as you do those things, you will allow God to work on and in you. Maybe the, maybe the greatest struggle in our culture with marriage is this idea that marriage was created to make you happy. If you enter marriage with that mentality, that marriage is designed to make you happy, it is going to feel at times like a weight and a failure. Marriage was given to us by God to remind us of our weakness and how much we need to approach him. He can't, we can't, not to make us happy, but to make us holy, right? To make us more like Jesus so he could chip away more of the stuff that does not belong in us. Two people come together in the context of covenant oneness, mutual delight, mutual joy in coming together. Two people who yield their bodies um, to one another, who ignore the moments of difficulty because we're all broken, we're all flawed, who allow God to change us even when we don't sense and feel and uh, get the change that we think um, that that should happen. God can take two people, bring them together in covenant one is make their marriage part of the mission and in doing so find joy in that relationship. And when that happens, then your marriage, right, becomes part of that, part of that mission uh, activity of God um, in the world. And there's this sense of joy that God deserves and that you and I want because we understand love for one another through the love that was established, that was given for us in the person of Christ on the cross, suffering, dying for our sins, giving and giving and giving. And in doing so, he was pleasing the Father. And ultimately, ultimately, it was his eternal joy to provide a place and a space for us for relationship with him. So maybe this morning, um, maybe you're watching all by yourself. Maybe you're watching um, with a spouse, um, fiance. Um, I want to take the minute, uh, take a minute just to pray over the relationships that God has given, uh, that God has given to us. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for giving us to one another in biblical community, sometimes in marital oneness, always in relationship with you. And God, I pray, I pray for healthy friendships. I pray for healthy marriages. Most of all, God, I pray for healthy relationships with you. 
God, help us to approach you in humility and not live out some sort of pseudo strength. But God, to come to you and say, we can't, you can. God, we believe it. We trust it. We want it for your kingdom's glory, for your sake, to put ourselves last and allow you to make us first and not seek the seats at the head of the table, but to take the ones at the back and allow you to do what only God we know that you can do. Use us. Use our relationships, our friendships, and our marriages to make a difference in the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe today, as, um, as we've um, taught the message, um, maybe God has surfaced a prayer need uh, for you. If you'll go back to uh, kind of where we started today at lpguest.com, if you'll go there, um, there's, a, there's a button there underneath that says uh, uh, next steps. Click on that button, and you'll have the opportunity there to share a prayer request with us. We'd be our joy uh, to pray with you. If we can help you, maybe you find yourself in relational difficulty and maybe you'd like to sit down and talk to a counselor or to a pastor, um, please reach out uh, to us. You can just reach out to us at info at lifepointohio.com and we'll help you with a referral um, here locally in uh, central Ohio or around one of our campuses uh, to help if we can help um, in that way to help our relationships take a next step. And again, I'll just, by way of reminder, um, Launching this new term of groups is a huge deal. That's a huge way to take a healthy step forward in, um, in your relationship with God and in him doing in us what we cannot do in ourselves. We hope and pray that today and in this series, we hope is a blessing uh, to you. Hope you'll take another second right now and worship with us.